Welcome to a pod called Quest. I'm Christian Davenport, a.k.a. Bitter Ninja Science. I'm with Derek Darby, a.k.a. Fearless Watcher Sage. In our pod, we utilize what we refer to as our Ptolemaic framework to evaluate the topic of the day. This means we evaluate three subjects, politics, economics, and social cultural factors across three domains, the diagnosis of the problem, the prognosis of where we're going to go, and the means to get from one to the other. Today's pod, episode one, we have Ice Cube and the contract with or on America. Sage, get us started. Hey, peace. What's up, y'all? Well, you know, here's where we want to start. So uh, science, man, as we were rapping about, I was really struck by the uh, interview that took place with Ice Cube and Chris Cuomo uh, on CNN. Uh Cube took a lot of heat on social media about the announcement that he was going to be speaking with people from the Trump administration. And when I first heard that news and I heard the reaction to it, the suggestion that people were making was that Cube was selling out to Trump. And I was like, well, obviously they don't know who Cube is and his legacy for hip hop. And so I said, let me just see what's going on with this, because it's certainly not what the spin is. And then I saw the interview with Cuomo and Cuomo was really trying to highlight the fact that Cube was talking to Trump. Cube was saying, look, what I want to talk about is the contract with black America. And that contract, among other things, is aiming to address the various manifestations of racial inequality and wealth inequality in the United States. So how about we have a conversation about that with people in power? And so his goal was to talk to Biden, Trump, whoever had power about these issues that we have been dogged by and need to deal with. But of course, the story was about Trump and him talking to Trump. So what I thought we would do, science, is really get into this contract and see what's happening, because you know we're not going to get the real story on CNN or the mainstream media. What you think about that? That's true. That's true. Although notice homeboy's conception of power already, right? It was already, it was already, it was political. It's political and symbolic. He didn't even go kind of like different conceptions, but I'm diving in already. So my bad, my bad. No, absolutely. I mean, look. It just turns out that for most people, I mean, and, and if we had to come up with some some data on this, I know we could do it. For most people, the conception of politics is one that is certainly focused on the great Leviathan, mm. uh, the government. And I know that's a metaphor that you've used in your own work, science, yeah. thinking, thinking back to Thomas Hobbes, that great political philosopher, English political philosopher who wrote the great work, the Leviathan. The Leviathan is the head of power in the nation. And so people typically think when we want to make some kind of change, whether it's change for equality, for justice, freedom, we got to go through the Leviathan. We got to get the Leviathan working for us. But certainly we need to break down how to think about the various manifestations of power. But the important point is to start with this diagnosis. So when you look at this contract with Black America, It starts by calling attention to the different forms of violence that have been perpetrated against black people in the United States that include bodily violence of the kind that we see every time a police officer decides that they got the green light to kill a brother or sister 
or economic violence, which takes the form of basically paying black people less for the same work, for not allowing proper investment in black business, for keeping black and brown neighborhoods economically depressed, and all the other things that contribute to why black people have so little wealth relative to white people in the United States. So these two kinds of violence, bodily and economic violence, have long been supported by government action, whether it's direct action through policy, through law, or complicity by looking the other way. And yeah, so yeah. I think the contract, as Cube is sort of presenting it, begins by diagnosing, hey, this is where we are right now. It's true. Before before we hit that, though, I, I'm like, I, I want to stay on the concept of the contract for a second, because I'm just I find it interesting that he kind of like he he kind of took that framing because I'm like, there's two sides to a contract. And effectively, you need to basically be able to hold both sides accountable. So I found I found the I found the the analogy of I mean, maybe he got this from the social contract. Maybe he got this from the anti-social contract by Yusef Naeem Klai. Maybe he was just thinking about like, you know, trying to get some legal accountability on this thing. But I thought it was a, a kind of an interesting dynamic because I'm sitting there going, okay, that presumes one, that someone could speak for black people, or black mm. America. Mm. And that presumes that someone, that there's a uniform um, collective on the other side that we can negotiate with, with regards to, and then establishing the relationship and then holding both sides accountable. And I'm just like, okay, in political science, we call it a commitment problem. Cause they're just mm. like, okay, well, who is going to hold the other side that's making this deal with Black America, whatever that is? Who's who's going to hold them accountable? Is Black America unified enough to hold them accountable? It's like, let's say the presidential candidate or, or, or the president signs some contract with Black America. Who's going to sign the, Who's going to sign the contract? So I found the analogy itself, just to get even to the document, to be somewhat um, somewhat kind of problematic in many respects. Yeah, that's that's interesting. The contract language has been used a lot. And another sort of thing about the contract language that something that it invokes that we might not necessarily want to invoke is sort of a legal kind of sounding thing. Exactly. When we think contract, we think we're going to go ahead and lawyer up. We're going to have the lawyers hammer out the details of the agreement. We're going to sign everything, notarize it, and we're going to put it on file and then we're good to go. And then, and then, of course, as you're pointing out, science, we need we need somebody that we can go to to enforce the contract when it when it's sort of not being held up. But also we need to know who's representing us in the contract. Right. Exactly. Now, in the case of law, we know you got your lawyer. I got my lawyer. and We're going to go ahead at it that way. But this contract with black America, this is a different kind of animal. And I mean, is 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 Brother Al going to be our representative? Is, is Brother Kanye got, you know, I ain't going to Kanye. Is Kanye representing us? Is Q rep who's representing black people in this contract with black America that's being put Precisely. out? Precisely. And can black people be represented if we assume that they're not monolithic in their thinking? They don't see eye to eye. Exactly. I'm getting that, I think. No, no. I mean, between that and then, like, I, I thought of, like, uh, Kanye got some lyric. I think it's just like, you know, ends can't read. Mm. It's just like, you know, it's like, N-words can't read. So it's just like, you know, why are you going to try to give us a contract? Why are you going to put something in our face? So I, I, I thought of that immediately with regards to um, the legal nature of the language. Because I thought maybe, I mean, he couldn't call it, like, Cube's political mixtape. 
But basically, in many respects, that's what it seemed like. It seemed like a concatenation of all kinds of complaints and ideas that, that have emerged in the black community over like the last hundred years or so that he just put under one banner. But I thought that label in and of itself was was interesting. But we, we, we could dig into the particulars now. Well, well, well now, nah, before we do that, before we do that science, because I think this is something that speaks this speaks to your scholarship in many ways and the work that you've done on uh, social movements and how to think about state repression and not just in the U.S. context, but globally. Mm-hmm. I think this is important. So, look, metaphorically, this idea about the contract is it's just like, look, this is a coming together of concerned citizens that don't have to be black and brown, but maybe are largely going to be black and brown because these are the folks that have been on the receiving side of bodily and economic violence. Mm. But the idea is to say, look, we coming together and we want to speak with some kind of voice to, to put forward our grievances with the United States. Now, we're going to call it a contract, but really what we're trying to do is say, look, we got some grievances. Here's what's, go- here's what's gone down as we see it. Here's what we need to be doing. And of course, the language that they use in the contract is, is this language of a, of a kind of beloved community or a, a community that we can all come together as equal, some egalitarian vision. And here's what we think we need to do to get there. Those are basically the three elements of this contract. That's true. Let us tell you what's going on. Let us tell you what ought to be going on. And let us tell you how to get from where we are, which is in a place that we screw, to a better place. Mm-hmm. Now, the contract says, look, here's us coming together with one voice. Now, I want to ask you, science, when you think about social movements, is this sort of an essential thing that has to happen? We have to have a way to articulate a broad vision of where we are, where we want to be and how to get there and speak with one voice about that. Now, I think that's that's directly on point, man. It's just like um, so in social movement literature, they speak of this idea of uh, it's the claim. It's the claim that's being made. Right. So Mm -hmm. it's like. um, you have the aggrieved and the difference. So why people are kind of upset with riots is there's no explicit claim making effort. People mm. are basically exploring physically that which they're feeling, but they're not articulating. A, oh, these are our grievances, by the way. Here's the list of things you need to fix. It's more like, OK, enough, enough of this burn, fight, attack, um, deconstruct. Um, so you're basically taking it out on, on property or, or, or each other, basically, in that respect, which is just a manifestation of frustration. And you perhaps have no words or you can't articulate the claim. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the social movement context, folks are coming together and they're 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 advancing a claim. The, the claim will be on posters. The claim will be on T-shirts. The claim will be on speeches. The claim will be in, um, music that is sung at the location. You know, we shall overcome. You know, we are we are humans. You know, we exist. Um, all these things are different manifestations of the claim. And that, that says the signal to those that are being selected as the response unit to potentially addressing these particular claims, political authorities, economic authorities, and so forth. And then basically they just kind of go, oh, okay, and having heard the claim, now we're going to figure out whether or not we're going to ignore you, give you something, put, put, put some of y'all at the table so you shut up. Um, send some tear gas in your direction to make you go home or go about our business and kind of like make you feel like something's going to happen by establishing some committee. And so that dynamic is really how this gets started. But the difference here is Mm. this is, this is cube and brother Hamilton and a couple other selected individuals that are, 
they're, they're speaking, I guess, on behalf of black America, you know, where's the, and, and is, so is a latent movement maybe behind it, uh, having a bunch of aggrieved individuals and these folks are giving some language to it and mm-hmm. articulating the claim. That's mm-hmm. very different than, you know, um, March on Washington and, okay, here's what we'd like to have addressed and, okay, and then providing Lyndon Johnson with some legislation that should be passed. I mean, this is a very different kind of um, format from it, but it's definitely something we've seen before um, with um, with West and Smiley, for example. Um, I think you mentioned you had some, you attended one of those events. Yeah, the last one in L.A. Um, with, with my dear brother Cornell West, who's, who's always so gracious, uh, I was at that last one in L.A. Um, I don't remember what year it was, but it was it was year ten of the of the event. And um, was that actually called the contract? You know, we I think it was kind of. I think it was. I think it was contract language was being used there too. The contract with Black America. I know. Brother Smiley had a, a text, a book that was generated. We got to just look that up. Um, yeah, I got that. I got it. So, so, so one question would be, if we wanted to do a serious analysis, is to is to look at what what the agenda was there and, yeah. and what the agenda is now. And I will say, just one of the things I see in the agenda now, my memory is not as fresh on what was happening with Brother Tavis and Brother West, but and I know this is something that's part of West's thinking philosophically. But one thing that I think Q put front and center, and he says it very explicitly in the interview with Chris Cuomo, but of course, Cuomo didn't dwell on this because, again, the news, they need to, they need to get viewers, so they want to sell the, the Trump hype. But Q said straight up, we got to deal with the wealth gap in the United States. Now, this, I think, is ultimately where our attention needs to shift no matter who becomes the next president. We got to really come to terms with that. Now, the thing is, the other thing I think I want to highlight, and this is interesting, another thing about the contract metaphor is it raises this question of how to think about leadership. Covenant, covenant with Black ah, America. That was right. The covenant with Black America. There you go. It was the covenant, a more biblical. That was a more biblical spin on exactly. the contract. Yeah, exactly. right. So, so, the, so, the, so you're supposed to sort of conjure up the idea, you know, of of the of the wise men, and unfortunately, too many times they're mostly men, as you and I both know. Instead of yeah, yeah. right, but the the wise men coming forth with the with the covenant, you know, that's been handed down from on high, right? Mm-hmm. This contract is the the lawyers coming in with the suits and they, <laughs> they work signed. So that's like a contrast in these two approaches. Now, with respect to the contract, that however. Cube is highlighting the wealth gap, and I think we got to definitely focus on on the wealth gap. But as an aside, whether you're thinking in terms of covenants or contracts, you're also having to think about leadership, right? Mm -hmm. Who should lead black and brown and aggrieved people in their effort to make their claim, as you put it, science, and to get that claim recognized in law and in policy? We got to talk about leadership. And frankly, Leadership becomes a very tricky issue and has been historically when you think about the struggle for civil rights and you think about the heterogeneity of black and brown people and the ways in which unfortunately leadership has always been consolidated around the hands of powerful men. Mm. And in some cases, men with social capital and other forms of capital. And this is something I think we got to be very cautious about when we look at any covenant slash contract with so-called black America. Big mm, mm. science. Nah, Sage, you got. I mean, what's fascinating about that, man, is just like, um, I mean, 
we'll, we'll hit the content of the of, of the text itself. But oh, yeah, we're gonna get it. Just the process of the generation of how we got to this particular spot, and mm-hmm. and and look at right the covenant who brings it two brothers. Yes, the contract who's bringing it two brothers. Mm-hmm. Now I'm just like I think of think of all the sisters that are involved in all the different movements that are currently even under the, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement. Right, this is mm-hmm. this is largely a bunch of sisters articulating stuff, and you see interesting kind of elements of um, Black Youth Project 100 put forward. Um, their kind of uh, argument about what should be done and um, all the, di- I mean, there's so many different organizations that are kind of like underneath BLM, but all these different kind of like um, organizations that put forward their own distinct claims. So, so definitely there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a piece to be done about trying to do a comparative analysis and see exactly what are all the similarities or differences across these different things. And are some sisters or some sister led initiatives putting forward some ideas as part of the claim that are distinct from the dynamics that are being um, articulated within this uh, this particular frame, because I'm just like, um, and in, in, in a sense, the sisters of BYP 100, for example, the stuff that they put forward, well, there is some movement, there is some consistency with regards to a bunch of people coming together. This is what I talk about in my How Social Movements Die book. It's like, mm. you have people who are repeatedly showing up, you have a claims-making effort, you have some organizational structure, and you have some activities. Mm. And I'm just like, um, from those four, I don't know the cube or brother Hamilton fit at all. Right. So it's just like, but I'm like, I don't, I don't want to go at him for that, but it's just like without the organizational basis behind the claim, it seems like um, it's a bit presumptuous to go to the language of contract unless they're going to help initiate the, the discussion. And then they get us to the table and they're representing the lawyers and then something gets signed and then it goes back to black folk or they're just putting stuff on the table, which is, I think, uh, I think that's a fair kind of way to go. But I think back to your point, I mean, they do mention the, the intergenerational advantages for whites and, and racial wealth gap as being something that we need to uh, hi- highlight. And then it's interesting, right? They make this, they, they make the slide to, well, to overcome this gap, we need bold changes yes. in law and economy. Yeah. And I'm like, I mean, that stuck out to me because I'm sitting on my side. I'm like going, oh, okay. All right. So th- that means they're going to bring it. And so, so I went into this document thinking that they were going to bring it because I was kind of like, okay, so we need bold changes to law and economy. Yeah. And what was fascinating for me in many respects was I'm like, I'm not seeing some connections that are made, but what's fascinating is they kind of jump. They, they, they start off with this uh, harmonious society that benefits everyone image of kind of like, so that's their prognosis. That's where they're going to try to lead us. And I'm so like, that was their beloved community, right? So I expected the harmonious society that benefits everyone to be, to be talked out and, and to, to lay that out a little bit. But I found the prognosis to be one kind of light, um, or, or just weak. I found the prognosis to be weak, but also I'm like, well, how are they not? Science, man, let me, how are they not talking socialism? Science, let me hit the pause, man. Wait, well, yeah. let me hit the pause on you for a minute, science, man. You know, yeah. you, know you know, I got to bring some logic, man. And for me, I'm slow, bro. I'm slow. You know, I'm slow like that. <laughs> and I got to, I got to break this down and put it back together. So let's let's pause, let's pause and just give give our listeners a little context because I suspect that not a lot of people they were so concerned with the sensationalism about Q meeting with Trump. I suspect nobody went to the damn contract, which is what mm. Q he said. Go oh, read yeah. the contract. The preface is written by uh, brother Derek Hamilton, a professor, uh, distinguished economist. Uh, I met dear brother uh, Derek many years ago, and that's uh, twenty, by the way. Say it again. That's twenty minutes. 
Got you. So, so basically, yeah, I met Brother Derek, and so he's a really distinguished economist, you know. Uh, and so I said, I got to go check this out. So when we when we turn to the text, you know, and we and we open the page of the contract, and we look at Brother Derek uh, Hamilton's preface, the preamble to the contract. Here's what we see. Just let me let me take let me take the text. Authentic agency is grounded in resources and America's unjust racial wealth gap is rooted in a history, underlying history, everybody, because you always got to talk about history when you're talking about injustice. You got to know how we got here. You got to figure out what the story is. History has privileged white people with financial advantages to buy critical additional and intergenerational advantages for themselves and their children. Government policy and literal government giveaways provided them with the finance, education, land, and infrastructure to accumulate and pass down wealth from one generation to the next. In contrast, Black people were largely excluded, and when they were able to accumulate land and enterprise, it was subject to seizure by government, complicit theft, fraud, and terror. So what's beautiful here is right up front in the second paragraph of Hamilton's preface to a contract with Black America, the diagnosis is laid bare. Mm -hmm. We're talking about a historic effort to allow for the accumulation of wealth and the means to gain wealth in the hands of people who were white, and a historic effort to prevent similar accumulation by black folk. Mm -hmm. And of course, when you know your history and you understand that black people were basically considered chattel, like farm equipment and and, and cows that could be brought and sold, their exploited labor was part of the wealth that contributes to the wealth gap that we all live with and see today. Mm -hmm. So I think this was a, important place to start. And then the very next paragraph, they say, look, people are going to make all kinds of excuses for why black people and brown people don't have no paper. And it's about them not working hard, them not taking responsibility, them being too ignorant, them them being defective, them having moral failures. So this is like a standard line. Yeah, to justify not just the wealth gap science, but any form of inequality is to turn the finger on the people who are on the short side of the inequality and to find fault with them for why things are the way they are. And the contract with Black America says we not believe in that. We not believe in that hype. Speak to me, science. Yo, man, I mean, it makes it makes a lot of sense, Sage, the way they were rolling. But it was kind of like um, and then they start, um, you know, they, they suggest we need a, a comprehensive rethinking of kind a of bold like our- overhaul of our laws and economy is the exact language. We need a bold overhaul of our laws and economy. Exactly. And, and the, you know, so my the overview point, though, is just like I'm like, OK, so what what you're then expecting is a 400-year analysis, a 400-year content analysis of everything that Black Americans have thought was the problem and thought was a solution. And 
then somehow they're magically going to do some analysis to be like, okay, these are the things that we should focus in on. So it's kind of like this hodgepodge of different items, right? That they then kind of identify that we should guide our rethinking. And I'm kind of like, you know, but I question, I question a lot of it, right? So they start with the neo-reconstructionism. Let me, let me pause. Let me hit pause again, science. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's set that up again for the audience. And then, and then I'm gonna let you, let you loose on it. So, okay. So we got the diagnosis and it's this sort of legacy of violence in different forms against black and brown people. They've been the recipients of the violence. White people have been the beneficiaries. And then we've got an effort to make excuses about why the state of play looks like it does. Mm-hmm. And the excuses typically point the finger at black and brown people. The contract says, look, we're not going to believe that hype. Then we also, as you point out earlier, there's a utopian vision, a prognosis underlying the contract. And they say very explicitly, invoking the ideals, right, of the founding, that all men, and of course, they put in, in quotes, and women are created equal. So this is sort of saying, look, when you think about Black Lives Matter, for example, that's about getting the nation to live up to its promises, mm-hmm. right? So that's the utopia. That's the prognosis. Now, here's the thing. As you're going to say, because you always do in the science, the devil is in the details. Yeah. So they say... It's time for a complete paradigm shift in how we run our institutions and operate our country. So the contract is going to give us some guidance on what this shift needs to look like, science. Mm-hmm. And now, as I know, because I know you, you're going to say the devil's in the details. So I'm happy to see that there's some diagnosis. I'm happy that there's a concern with transforming the society by changing our policy. And I'm certainly all for finding a more perfect union where we live up to the promises that the nation made to its citizens. But then, of course, we can't take the goal for granted. And I know you got something to say about this, because if you look at the legacy and history of black political thought in particular, there's always been disagreement and clashes, not only over principles. We saw this with Douglas and du- and, 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 and Du Bois. We, we saw this with Douglas and Garvey. Um, there are also clashes over principles and practices that reflect the rich diversity of Black political thought. So now when we launch into the recommendations in the areas that they mention, we see in thinking about what they call this neo-reconstruction, two of the first things they highlight is the demand for reparations and finance reform. And so we definitely want to dig into the substance of the contract and and, and we're about to do that. But what I want to do is just set out for our listeners like the general sort of framework where we are right now. So basically we're looking at the preamble to the contract and we see the diagnosis that has to do with pointing out racial inequality and the wealth gap in particular. And then we see a concern to bring about a more perfect union where we're living up to the promises of our ideals as a nation. And then, of course, we're going to have specific views about what policies and changes need to be brought about to make that happen. Now, one of the things that I think is important for us to point out is that not only can't we take the goal to be 
uh, a matter that's not subject to contestation. We we can't assume that everybody's going to see eye to eye on what to do about the diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And there's going to be plenty of room for argument. So as the case in point, the contract begins with the heading of black opportunity and representation. And what they're calling the case for neo-reconstruction is, they say, an aggressive initiative meant to redress past wrongs systematically imposed on black Americans economically through many generations. Mm -hmm. Now, our audience knows science. When we hear this, people are typically talking about reparations of some form. And true to form, this is the first major suggestion that's being made in the contract that we need to figure out a way to come up with a viable reparations program. So now here's one detail that we got to talk about. Do we cut black people checks? How much and when and who gets what and on what basis? So let's speak to this bit of detail right here as we open up the substance of the contract discussion science. I guess my problem, I mean, like, you know, so they go into, you know, we need to be compensated for work that we didn't get paid for. We need to get compensated for land that was taken away from us. Um, they, they segue later on into kind of like, you know, um, trying to compound the, the investments that would have been made off of things we generated. I mean, all, all that's interesting, right? But it raises the question how, exactly how would that be implemented? But more importantly, I, I think it's the issue of what happens to white wealth? It's like, oh, okay, so, you know, okay, so you get a check. How's that? How's that put you up against Bezos? How's that put you up against Gates? How's that? How, does that improve your situation regarding, um, you know, Bank of America? I'm like, I'm like, it's not like white. Th- given the dynamic they've laid out, it's not as if whites stop generating resources. So it's like if blacks start getting access to some resources, how does that offset the other? Um, dynamics that are being laid out with regards to the rest of the population. And so it's like, it seems like that, that is, we don't exist in capitalism alone, right? We're not just like, you know, just because we have some money makes things better by definition. It's a relative comparison. It's a relative standard. Yeah. So it's just like, there's nothing in here about, there's nothing in here about generating or there's nothing in here about countering the wealth generation. I mean, does this overcome the gap basically is my point. It's like, okay, they, they, they're cutting a check, but it's like, unless the money's coming from, from, from people who have money already, I don't see how that, that improves the relative situation. And this, this, brace, this raises a broader point, right? Which is like kind of segueing to the, the massive bank lending and financial reform section. But I, I just, I raise it because it's relevant here. It's just like, they basically say capitalism is good. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, so they believe capitalism is good and all black folk needed some more cash. And then they're then they're okay. But I'm like, is that how is that how capitalism functions? It's just like we don't generate resources alone. It's 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 relative dynamics, and it's a, it's a relative comparison. And so I found that to be really kind of disappointing, Sage man. I'm like, I was really, I was like, I was like, wow. They they come off saying they want a harmonious society that benefits everyone, and then they say capitalism is good, implying that capitalism is that society that will benefit everyone. I'm like. I don't like, I thought Homeboy was an economist that was helping him do this. Cause I'm like, that's not what capitalism is. 
Yeah, well, I tell you, man, you you jumped the gun on us a little bit, man. Yeah, my bad. I mean, I, but it seemed yeah. like it was dropping, though. Yeah, I know. You know, we was gonna go there, man. So let's let's again let's pause for one second and set it up, man. But you know, we're gonna go there, and you know, we had to put our students on to Brother Ali and Immortal Technique, yeah, to take up the premise as to whether <laughs> capitalism is good. So we're gonna refer our listeners to Brother Ali and Immortal Technique. And then you could get a little bit of a primer on why we are not so sure about the goodness of capitalism. But in any event, let's sort of let's pause for one second. Is there anything in the evidence science that might account for why people don't think about the wealth gap as a relative problem that requires more than just cutting checks or investing in black business, but also requires some kind of tax policy mm-hmm. that is going to stop rich people from being able to have bank accounts in foreign countries or moving their money offshore or moving their businesses offshore where they don't have to be subject to the same kinds of labor laws and regulations or being able to basically transfer wealth by more or less keeping Uncle Sam out of their pocket while Uncle Sam is getting everybody else's pocket. Is there mm. anything to account for why just people don't take up that side of things? What do you think? Well, you went there. I was like, okay. <laughs> it's like, uh, I mean, two things, right? Where it's just like, mm. I think given the individualistic nature of the society, I think everyone's mostly focused on their own bank, mm. their own wallet, their own purse, their yeah. own situation. But they they miss the larger context of we live in a society together Mm. and what you have has implications for what I have in terms of how it's wielded within the broader marketplace. Mm. But I I think the second point is kind of related to what you're saying. I I view this and we talked about this before. I view it as a crisis of imagination and folks aren't thinking of every creative way possible to generate Mm. resources and distribute them better and more equitably. And we just haven't gone to this kind of like, you know, it's a it's a strong pivot to be like, well, you know, you have some money and you've accumulated it in a very hostile, predatory, not so nice fashion. And so we should stop you from making those resources and we should redistribute those to other people. That makes people feel uncomfortable, I think, in many respects, in part because of the whole American dream thing. It's just like, hey, you know what? I mean, what? What's the line? I want to I want to get on my Apple so I could be I could make another Bill Gates. I mean, it's like, you know, that's method, man. Red man. Right. I'm just like there's an element. There's an element to the belief that, you know, yeah, we could make it. I I could make that money. It's like, you know, I'll find a way to do it. You know, Master P, Jay-Z is like all these people are just kind of like, I'll find a way to make some money. But I'm like, okay, that's a few people and that's not the majority. And what are we supposed to do with the majority of black folk? Mm. that have no resources and, and frankly ain't none coming. Mm. What are we supposed to do with that? Mm. Are we supposed to allow things to continue? Cause, cause wealth inequality is just continuing to grow. Mm-hmm. It's not like, it's not going away. It's not, it's not staggering. And, and post COVID, I mean, it's going to be even worse because that the, the basic dynamics of the inequalities within the political and economic system have just merely, merely been magnified by what's been taking place with regards to, um, 
the COVID situation. And so I think that we're, we're, we're really at a loss regarding how to think about this particular problem and how to address it. But no one's going there in terms of like, okay, we need to stop. We need to stop these wealthy people. I mean, there was a piece in the New York Times the other day about antitrust sentiment. But I'm like, this is actually a return to like the early 1920s and 30s where we were just like, you know, forget this standard oil and all these other businesses. We, we, can't, we can't allow companies like this to have this much power. And so we're there again. Um, unfortunately, I, I don't think it's as widespread or as well understood as it was back then. But that, that actually gives me a little bit of hope that people are kind of seeing what that seeing what that's looking like. But the conversation of reparations seems like one sided. It's just like, OK, let's just get black people some stuff and then they'll be better in the economy. And I'm like, well, no, this is relative. You can't just give black people some stuff and have no implications for other people's stuff as it relates to what you can invest in, what you could do with those resources and so forth. It's like wealth is wealth is by definition in many respects, or the market at least is by definitionally um, like relational, right? So we can't talk about one side. So so science, this 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 the way you put it is, you know, we're suffering from a lack of imagination. Mm-hmm. And that accounts for why people don't think more creatively about policies that are needed to close the very real and very significant racial wealth gap that involve not just cutting checks, but perhaps also, in addition, closing tax loopholes, for example. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you would characterize this as a lack of imagination, but there's also a certain certain kind of short-sightedness. So one of the things that I think has to happen is... We got to stop thinking in the moment. Yeah. Not take two or three days or even the term of the current presidency or the last two or three presidencies of the United States for this wealth gap to get generated. It took a long time. Now, it would seem to be the case that it'll probably take a significant bit of time for us to mitigate this gap. Now, what that means is I think people need to think more about not themselves, but future generations. That's right. I think, I think science, what we need to be thinking about is not Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos, but we need to think about Bill Gates Jr., Jeff Bezos Jr., and Lakeisha and Jamal Jr., That's right. and what their lives will look like relative to wealth differences 10, 20, 30 years from now. That's right. And I think part of the creative thinking that you're calling for science is thinking creatively about the intergenerational fact of how the wealth gap grows and is sustained. And so it may be, for example, that we tell rich people, hey, look, we're not going to come after your bread. You can hold on to your bread and and, and spin it. But we are going to find ways that you can't pass that bread on. Now, of course, this is going to get tricky because, you know, you got black and brown people that have some bread, too. You got the entertainers. You got the athletes. Right. A few of us have managed to sort of climb up the ladder. What's this mean for us? Hmm. Well, this is where it's going to be a hard conversation. Right. If we real serious about some principles and if we got some real issues of justice and morality with the wealth gap, then, hey, we might have to. Say, look, we're going to have to make this sacrifice, too, for a more egalitarian future. 
And those those hard questions, those those complexities are not in this contract. No. This contract is very much kind of like, no, we we owe this and it should be delivered here. Yeah. And that's it. There's no complexities with regards to where it's going to come from and what the implications are for the continuity of wealth as we move forward. No. And again, you know, I mean, I don't want the audience to think that, you know, we all critical and, and I don't think they should think that. I think we want to bring logic and, 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 and science data to bear on what are really tough problems. And I think the first step is to put something down. And that's so that's what this does. Right. Cube is saying, look, working with Brother Hamilton, we putting something down on paper and we trying to get some energy and some mobilization around it. That's right. And look, you and I, in our very first podcast, have made this the subject of the conversation. So we talking about it because this is important. That's right. However, we got to work out the details in a way that is responsive to what we know about the data, to what's feasible. And that takes into account some of the co- complexities that we want to call attention to. Now, on that point, since you brought it up and it's clearly connected, the next heading on the contract after Black Opportunity and Black Representation, and of course, we're not going to be able to get through all of this in the 60 minutes we have for the day, but we're going to do what we can, yeah. is massive bank lending and finance reform. Now, yeah. you and I read this on our own, and now we're coming together for the first time to talk about it. And like you, my heart sunk, brother, when I said, when I read, while capitalism is a good system, it requires capital to participate. Now, on the one hand, my heart sank. On the other hand, I was laughing out loud. Because I'm like, wait a minute, you get the sense that this is a progressive document. And I just don't know a lot of progressives that are going to lead with capitalism is good. (laughs) And I know when you and I taught our class on black radical thought, which was a big success, I think, we had our students read a number of radical thinkers, including Du Bois and his important work, Dark Water. Mm-hmm. This year marks the 100th anniversary of his publication, as, 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 as I know you know, science. And we also had them read the great Angela Davis, who was profiled two days ago in the New York Times in a wonderful piece that highlighted her important legacy. And someone, and she's someone that we both look up to and admire. But both Du Bois and Davis certainly would deny the goodness of capitalism. And there are plenty, plenty of people that would. Now, the premise here, I think that they should have put forward is, look, if you do have capitalism, <laughs> and we certainly have it in the U.S., there should be equal access to capital. But that's not capitalism. Okay, break it down, break it down, break it down, because I was going mean, to ask you to say something about black venture capital and closing yeah, the gap. And I know that's something you've been talking to me about lately, and I was a little skeptical when you first came at me with that. You was like, yo, yo, Sage, man, we could get with the black venture capitalists who are trying to pump money. Into, and I said, well, hold up, man. How's that sort of doing what we need to be doing if we got to have these critical concerns about capitalism? So speak to me, man. It don't add up right now for me. So, I mean, the they're confused in many respects. But in other respects, they have an idea, right? So they're just like, okay, so we live in a capital system. Let's try to make it work better. And hence the venture capital move makes sense, right? They're just like, okay, you know what? You get businesses, Airbnb and all these other places because 
venture capitalists put money behind it. Mm. And that money builds more money. It creates jobs. It does a whole bunch of things which simultaneously are incredibly important and incredibly useful. And unfortunately, right now, black folk are not getting any venture capital. We're not getting access to these investments. Women, women are women aren't doing that well either. But this 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 belies the points. And so they're kind of like, if we're going to live in a capitalist system, we need we need greater access to this venture capitalism. So the capitalist part makes okay, that makes sense. But then they got some inconsistencies in there, right? They're talking they're talking about equality. There's no equality in capitalism. That's the point. Mm. It's like you know, um, who's ever able to amass greater wealth amasses greater wealth, and those that don't just get nothing. That's just how that works. I mean, and so to speak about maximize, maxim, they talk about maximize employment, housing and education. That's not capitalism. This is a fundamental misunderstanding of exactly what the systems of economic processes involve. There's no kinder and gentler capitalism, brother, that we, you know, we learned that in America. There's a kinder and gentler form of it. We can't do that. And we've tried that. I, I believe the kind of general version is when they bring uh, the moving van with them to evict your ass and say and send you to the curb. I mean, like you know that that's how that works. They, they don't pull out they don't pull out the tasers as they, as they're as they're pulling you out of your house that you can no longer afford. I mean, but there's just some fundamental inconsistencies, right? So capitalism is good. If we could just get capitalism to function right, then we'd be okay. If I could just get my money right, then we'd be good. And it's just like um. Capitalism is not about getting your money right. Capitalism is about individuals competitively going, sorry, individuals or corporations um, competitively going at one another. And inherently, they distribute things inequitably. And effectively, then, the state is then left to figure out what to do with those inequities. And socialist systems or democratic socialist systems, the political system will try to catch it'll try to establish the safety net for those that are suffering from the vagaries of capitalism. And some systems don't, they just let you fall and fall and fall. And then we end up with the gross economic wealth inequalities that we have in the country now. And so their system is kind of like, well, we need to make capitalism work for us. And I'm just like, um, okay, first off, we tried that. And second off, how, how deeply entrenched are these problems that, Will, will they be overcome by, for example, the, by, by issuing checks from the compensation? Does that help move money back into the black community when we have these gross inequities already? But then their desire to have maximum employment, maximize housing, maximize education, maximize access to credit. I mean, it's just like the system that they're suggesting that they would like to exist, I don't think exists. I don't think it can exist within capitalism, and the, and that inconsistency I found to be incredibly problematic. So, so science, you got you got to break something down for me, man. So, look, this 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 document I think can usefully be read alongside a reading of an older tradition of Africana uh, social, political, and importantly, economic thought. Now, help me, help us contextualize what you just said when we know that there are traditions in, let's say, even the black radical tradition, whether we're thinking about Garvey, whether we're thinking about the Republic of New Africa and Amari Obadeli, yeah. that have emphasized the importance of black economics. Yeah. Now, one, one rap on the black community has been 
Whatever we say about what the man has or hasn't done for black communities, one in-house thing that black folks say to each, to each other is that we need to support our own black businesses. Yeah. So one of the things that's come out of the pandemic is, and, and people sort of, you know, sense of being enlightened now to racial injustice and wanting to do something about it, is there's been an uptick in support for black businesses. And this is wonderful. But one of the things that black folks have said amongst themselves is that we need to support our own businesses, our local businesses, and not just our hairstylists and our eating places, but people who are selling other kinds of goods and services. Yeah. So the black radical tradition and some of the great movements, whether, like I said, it was Garvey or, or, or the Republic of New Africa, which much later, or the Nation of Islam, have all made a point to talk about the importance of black economics. And some have argued that should be front and center. Now, what's their relationship to capital, right? How are they negotiating that balance between emphasizing black economics and also setting us in some kind of opposition to capitalism? Now, I think Garvey was different, as I know you know. Maybe he, was a, he had a bit more capital in him than, than Amari Obadelli and certainly Angela Davis and even Du Bois, I believe. But go ahead and speak to this, Science. Help us out with this. <sighs> Yo, man, it's like, I know that's a lot, but but just give us yeah, a that's that, that's that's a lot, man. I'm just like so so I, I believe that what what currently exists and what most of the conversation really gets down to is okay, we, there's black businesses, right? But they're mostly small black businesses, and so there's there's an element of okay, equity. We don't where's where's the Ford? Where's the where's the GM? Where's the Amazon? Where's the where's the Walmart in the black community? Okay, so maybe we don't have those because they don't have access to venture capital, so they can't grow in that particular manner. But it's just like a bunch of small employment things aren't going to dramatically transform anything. And where a lot of our dollars seem to be going is consumerism. We're mm. buying a bunch of stuff. Mm. And so we talk about black Ye wealth. Yeezys is expensive, right? I hear them Yeezys is a lot of money, right? I don't have them myself, man. I don't know if you're going to buy some for your boy, but I'm Yeezys for a lot of money, man. Without, without question. But I mean, so, so, so we're struggling however we are in the economy and we have a little money and then that money, that money goes out. And like, so this conversation is like, oh, you, the money should go to black businesses, which is something, you know, they've been talking about since forever. Right. And so the thing I find interesting is just like, OK, so but the where are the large black businesses that are employing 50,000 people? Mm. Those things, those things aren't present. So it's a it's an it's a not clear understanding of exactly how the economic system works. Now, what I'm getting from um, some conversations I'm having now about the venture capital thing is just like, well, you can get the employment from the venture capital. You know, the venture capital invests in a business, that business grows from now servicing 100 people to servicing 1,000 people, and then 5,000, and then 10,000. Mm -hmm. And then there's the staff that goes along with that, and that grows. And so it's possible that that's there, but um, if that's if that's what they meant by their venture, by their mention of venture capital, I mean that's the other thing with the problem with the contract, right? It's just like each element in the contract should be hyperlinked to all of the work that un underlies this particular position. Mm -hmm. I'm just like you can't go from the venture capital, um, uh, and they're not even talking about they're not even talking about the growing of black businesses per se. It's more like um, the police and public um, facilities that um, deal. Or that that deal with black businesses should be investing in the black community. I mean, so it's a very precise point there. It's not even talking about the growth potential that exists within the black um, imagination and entrepreneurship, and that the black businesses we have can basically take us in these directions, which would be which would be fabulous, right? But they they don't even go there, right? So that's kind of 
it's, it's a limited nature and understanding of kind of like how we should think about the problem to begin with. So on the hyperlink point, and I think we're running up against our hour. Um, yeah, brother. You keeping track what we got left? We got nine minutes, man. All right, nine minutes, man. Let's make this last point, man. So here's the thing. You, 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 you suggested a hyperlink to, to, to research. And I, of course, that's the scientist in you, man. It's like, yeah, yeah. Show, me, show me where the information is. And I, and I know there's information out there you know, on it. And, 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 so, and so, do, so do these brothers. I'm sure they know. But that said, here's another thing that is in the same vein. When we look at the contract, what we end up getting is a bullet, a long bullet point list of different things, like what to do with loans, how the Fed Reserve should act. We should have some baby bonds, right? We should, we should do this and that. We should figure out a different way to do credit score ratings that take into account rent and utility payments. Yep, yep. So we've got this long kind of laundry list of bullet points under each sort of suggestion. So I guess the question for us is how do we generate the list and can we do the science, so to speak, science and generate a list that collects data on how the people on the streets, the people in the neighborhood, the people in the projects, the people on the corner see things rather than having some list imposed upon us by scholars, by researchers can we get some more reliable information about what the people think? And I think you should share with our listeners our views about this and a little bit about what's coming with the Ptolemy study. Yeah, I think um, that's a very good point, right? So I think whether or not um, Cube and, and Brother Hamilton or the NAACP or, or Brookings or, you know, us are generating some, some lists from wherever, um, needs to be brought up against the, you know, the rubber needs to meet the road, right? We need to, we need to identify the fact that people in communities who have been living and suffering through these problems have their own ideas about the diagnosis of the problem and the prognosis and the means and that it would be a useful and indeed necessary conversation to collect all of these different ideas and then have a collective vetting to figure out what goes on. I mean, maybe that's the work that kind of precedes this contract conversation. Maybe we need to vet all of these ideas and systematically identify exactly who's doing what. I didn't really realize that Maxine Waters was running this some kind of like financial committee within <laughs> within the U.S. government. I'm like, I'm like, she is. I'm like, you know, so is this some basic information that was kind of missing? But the idea of like, okay, so what's been tried before? What might work? What should we prioritize? Because they're the only kind of way that you could think about a prioritization within this contract is stuff that came first, but it, it just seems like it's like buckshot, right? It's like click, click, <laughs> like, okay, let's address all these things. Cause I'm like, this just becomes somewhat problematic with regards to thinking through, I mean, even the judicial and public policy reform section, I mean, it doesn't address the problematic nature of money within politics and how that undermines everything that they talk about. Mm. I'm just like, I'm just like, so fundamentally, mm. it's not quite clear exactly. Um, should we, should we weight all of the items within the contract equally? Are we prepared to mobilize around some things better than others? Mm. Is that the thing that we should be selecting on? Should we be, will we trying to identify the thing that affects the most people first and then kind of like build up from that? I mean, police reform in the, in the contract is perhaps one of the longest sections, right? And so that's kind of a clearly a reflection of kind of like where we are. But is that the thing that is most central to 
the thriving of the black community in America. Mm, mm, wonderful. Well, I think we might be good, huh? Oh, dude, no, no, no. We got five minutes, man. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, this is an interesting point then because this question of, well, first of all, I mean, just to, just to hit this point again. So the, the, the issue is whenever we see whether it's a covenant with Black America or a contract with Black America, we're going to see a list of suggestions as well as a list of grievances about what should be done to take us from the mess that we're in to the utopia that we want to live together. And this contract with Black America is no different. It has long lists of suggestions. And what we're talking about right now, really just the basic question is, we should all ask as critical citizens, right, who are trying to live the dream and have, hope, have some of our fellow citizens live the dream, where, where did the suggestions come from? How are they generated? Whose voices are being sort of heard? And what are our priorities? And we have to ask all these questions, understanding that we are different in all kinds of ways. Right? I mean... Maybe. maybe. Well... This is why we need the data, right? The data yeah, would tell us the degree to which we're different. See, that's science. And that's, that's the thing. When I'm working with science, I can't just go off the cuff all the time, off the dome, because science don't check me. See, I'm, I'm a philosopher, so I like to go off the dome, but I go off the dome in a way that's informed by stuff I've read, but science is actually doing the experiment to get the data. And that's why I like being linked to you, my brother, is because you keep me focused, but in a way that doesn't let me move too far from what we know and what we can establish empirically. So I respect that, my brother. Yo, man, much appreciated. But it's also this issue, I mean, like um, you mentioned the, the Ptolemaic framework that we're using. I mean, principally what we're trying to do is we're trying to ask some of these questions to as many populations as humanly possible so that we can get all of the collective wisdom that Du Bois is pointing us towards that we needed to collect in order to figure out our problem. Mm -hmm. It's like, there's no, the nation's not going to do it. Brooklyn's not going to do it. West is not going to do it. None of these individuals are going to do it. Our problem is too complex. Thus, we need to compile as much information from as many different people as possible to piece together what it is that our program should be. And like, you know, that's the thing that's kind of differential, I think, from the thing we're talking about from, you know, having a covenant handed on, handed on down to the masses or, or a contract passed by some brothers and some lawyers who are pseudo-capitalists. I mean, it's like all, the, we can't deliver on the, to the people the truth in this particular manner. In part, the people need to be intricately connected with the truth, right? That's why I think um, where a lot of the movements would be, uh, Black Lives Matter movement are coming from are very useful because they're having a little bit more grassroots understanding. Now, whether or not it's the right understanding, whether or not it's the right thing we should be focusing in on, that's a separate point though. And I think we're, def we're definitely gonna have to address that one in another, in another post. Sounds good. Sounds good. Now, so we should we should you think our listeners want to hear hear more of our analysis of the contract for next time? Um, well, luckily on um, on the website, we could we could issue a survey so we could ask people whether <laughs> whether or not they'd like us to do it or not. We there could like go. we could, you know, we could get, get some data on it and like enter kind of like work from there to figure out exactly how we should be playing it. But I think. That's what's up. We're going to give you, the listener, some input on how to go on this journey with us with logic and data 
in a search for a more just, a more equal, and more ultimately humane society. What do you think about that? What should we do next? Should we keep going with this or should we hit you with something else? Let us know. If you're interested in a deeper dive into the subject, you can go to see our website, www.doingthenowledge.com. You can hit us up on Twitter at Doing Knowledge or look out what we're doing on Instagram, Doing Knowledge again. Um, that's the lines. That's the logic and the science for the day. We out. Peace. Peace.